Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlewood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. The Box of Oddities is now a CastBox original. CastBox is the fastest growing, highest rated podcast app on both iOS and Android, where you can find all your favorite podcasts. You can listen to The Box of Oddities wherever you access your podcasts. But we hope you give CastBox a try. The curator is greatly pleased with CastBox. We think it's the best. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. So we're decorating for the holidays. Kat loves this time of year, and she is very in, very invested in uh, in the traditions that we've, uh, we've developed over the past few years. One of the things that she loves to do, decorate our Christmas tree while listening to Christmas music. Now, that's not that unusual, except that we use Amazon Echo, and every time a song that she doesn't like comes up, she skips over it, even though I am in mid-verse. <laughs> Case in point. Baby, it's cold outside. Now, I understand why you hate that song, because it's about rape. <laughs> Essentially, isn't it? It's, it's, it, well, no, it's, no. And it's interesting because I was just learning about this the other day, um, because there are lots of parts to that song, obviously, that raise some, uh, some questions. But the lines specifically say, what's in this drink? What's in this drink? Yeah, it's about roofies. Right. Um, but from what I was reading the other day, um, in that period of time when that song was written, that was kind of like a go-to kind of stock line, like a gag line. Um, so people would use that when they were caught being awkward or if something, you know, they had stumbled over the words or something. And they would refer to their, their obviously not boozed up drink and say like hey what's in this drink like it was a glass of water and they'd say hey what's in this drink so it kind of like hey looks good on you 
It's I don't know what that means. Never mind. Um, but <laughs> so it was. It's a it's a, a joke. Not that you know she's actually feeling boozed up and and okay. say what's in. The, now of course you know he's still being really you know pushy and she's still talking about being slut shamed. So there are still problematic issues there. Uh, you know of course. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I he's, thought that was really interesting. He's using the impending storm to get in her pants. Right. It's Essentially, a, <laughs> that's what's happening. Be a shame if you went outside and died. Yeah. You know it reminds me of that old Monty Python sketch you know where the the two like kind of bullies come into the army and they're all like hey it's a nice tank you got there be a shame if something happened to it right (laughs) I love that (laughs) so anyway I guess it's not as bad as I had always thought but still it's it's, uh, well it's overplayed (laughs) well (laughs) at the very least yeah yeah (laughs) this I gotta read you this this just this just came in on um, on our social media Um, Jesse just wrote in all caps what has two thumbs and use them to click refresh for 45 minutes and it paid off this girl, Sia in Nashville. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah, we had a, uh, a flash sale. Um, I guess Zanies was able to move some some things around and made room for uh, 10 more pair of VIP tickets for our... Say, what's in this drink? Hey. Hey. Looks good on you. I don't know what that means. Never mind. February 27th show in Nashville. And we're so excited. Uh, that uh, that so so we're gonna get to yeah. see more people. Yeah, those tickets just went on sale as of the recording of the show. They just went on sale, and as of now, there are a, a couple, a few VIP tickets left. Regardless, there are no bad seats at Zany's, and there are general admission seats available. And uh, we would love to see you. Just go to theboxofoddities.com, click on the live show link. Who goes first this week? You do. I do. Okay, I'm going to turn the light on. Hold on. As a wise man once said, what you got for me, what you got for me. A wise man? Yeah, one of the wise men. Mm-hmm. We were in, oh. the, in the Holy Land, and uh-huh. that was one of the things that... Uh, that they said uh-huh. when they were looking for gifts for the baby Jesus, they sure. would go around to various uh, uh, merchants and they would say, what you got for me? Oh, I see. What was that? June? Was it June that, that Jesus was born? I'm not sure. I think I heard it was September. That's interesting too. Yeah. Maybe we should dig into that a little bit. When, what his actual birthday was? Yeah. I read an article about that a long time ago and based on astrological positions at the time and things, you know, that were documented, they think they think it was somewhere in mid-September. Th- this particular author did, yeah. Side note, a little bit of a tangent. When I was in college, there was a boy who I guess was, um, you know, intrigued by uh, my constant floppery and... Um, and ill-timed jokes and uh, I didn't know this kid but he knew a friend of mine and so he, he approached me one day and he was like hey you're your cat and you're a friend of so-and-so and I'm a friend of so-and-so and I was like oh hey nice to meet you and he was like yeah I don't believe in Jesus either and I was like I'm sorry what <laughs> what have you been told <laughs> That's an odd way to introduce yourself to uh, in my life. Someone. Yep. Yeah. So weird. I was like, okay, well, that's not accurate. And (laughs) also, what? (laughs) Anyway. So where was I? Oh yeah, what you got for me? 
I wanted to talk today about a fella named Pedro Gonzalves. He was born in 1537 on one of Spain's seven Canary Islands off the coast of West Africa. And he suffered from a rare genetic condition known as hypertrichosis, uh, also called Ambra syndrome, also known as werewolf syndrome. Is, um, is this Jojo the dog face boy? Um, no, no, it's the, not Jojo the dog the face boy. circus performer? Yeah, no. No? No, this guy was born in 1537. Oh, I missed that And his right. name was not Jojo. Yeah, but Jojo could have been his circus folk name. So, so this condition is defined by an abnormal amount of hair growth on any part of the body in excess of the regular amount present in people of the same race, age, and gender. So at a very young age, Gonzalves was treated as a curiosity and often referred to as like a wild boy. Um, they called him a, a hairy wild man and treated him like a curiosity. They put him in a cage Ooh. and at the age of 10, shipped him to France as a gift to King Henry II oh my for God. his coronation. They, Oh my God. Yeah. They sold him as a like a, a oddity, like, like a, a pet. Yes, exactly. Um, the wild man, also known as uh, wild man of the woods, is a mythical feature that actually appears in artwork and literature of the medieval. Europe. They were like these half men, half animal creatures, uh, often depicted in mythology. Uh, they were thought to become ferocious overnight, stealing and eating children, you know, this whole thing. And um, so it was thought that he was one of these mythological creatures at 10. Um, and of course, his uh, coming to court was very exciting for for people. They were all oh, yeah. all a Twitter about seeing this, you know, this wild man. Um, and they were like, OMG. They were like, OMG. Yes. Uh, he was then brought to the dungeon for observation. That doesn't seem like a very good place to observe anything. A dungeon? Yeah. No, it naturally would seem dark and kind of... Dank. Uh, and yeah, no, dank. Yeah. Mm. Lighting sucks in a dungeon. It does. Yeah. So uh, King Henry had his uh, his smarties, doctors and scientists, quote unquote, sure. um, who would do the investigating. So they went to check him out and they found out that he, it was almost like he was just a person. What? Yeah. That's unheard of. Yeah. After <laughs> the hairy man in the dungeon was a real guy. Right. Yeah. Um, so they, yeah, they just observed that he was really mild-mannered and just behaved like a 10-year-old boy and, you know, hadn't been... Was he a 10-year-old boy? He was a 10-year-old boy. Oh, my God. And he'd been treated so poorly but still maintained, like, a really calm nature to him. And uh, for a long period of time, it's reported that people uh, were feeding him, like, raw meat and oh animal food and just not not treating him like a human. So once it was discovered that this kid was kind of just, like, almost a real person. Yeah, and it took a team of quote-unquote scientists to actually talk to him. Now, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say scientists, and I do apologize Alchemists. that I used that word. Yes, yeah. Okay. I shouldn't have said scientists at all. But um, 
So the king had an idea, and he wanted to kind of try this experiment. So he brought Pedro out of his cage, um, called him by a new name, which is the Latin version of his name. So it's Petrus Gonsalves. And so as this experiment, Henry II ensured that Petrus had the education of a nobleman. Oh, wow. The thing is, when I was writing this, I wrote nobleman, but apparently I misspelled it or I missed a letter or something. So my notes say uh, the education of a nebula. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so Pedro was taught to speak, read, and write in not just one, but three languages. He eventually held a position at court in the kingdom. Did he did he seek and 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 achieve revenge on those who fed him raw meat in a cage? He did not. What he was remained, retribution at nigh? He remained chill, and uh, better and, than I would have done. And word was uh, carried himself as though he had always been a nobleman. So Henry II was an avid hunter and a participant in jousts and tournaments. And in June of 1559, there was this big tournament being held uh, where they were celebrating the marriage of his daughter and also a uh, like a peace treaty with their longtime enemies of Austria. And during that jousting match, King Henry uh, was wounded in the eye by a fragment of splintered lance. Uh, he eventually succumbed to sepsis and died. Oh, that was in uh, Nostradamus allegedly predicted that. I think the, the quatrain said something like, in a gilded cage, he will be slain through his eye or something like that. And they attributed it to, to that. Oh, yeah. Interesting. I, I love finding reasons why I don't believe Nostradamus predictions. That's because you do not understand quatrains. No, that's accurate. Can't you hear the quatrain coming? Choo choo doo 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 doo. Come, Come on, on, ride quatrain <laughs> and ride, ride it. it. <laughs> I can't do it. That's so ridiculous. That's the gospel according to Quad City DJs. Quad City. Yeah. Quatrain. Quad. What? what? What have we discovered? It's a glitch in the matrix, and you experienced it with us, freak. <laughs> So anyway, what was his name? Larry? No. Uh, Henry II died. And so his wife, Catherine de Medici, uh, became the ruler. And she decided she was going to have her own experiment with Pedro. She wondered, since he was this nobleman type now, uh, what would happen if he married a beautiful woman and then had babies? Oh, see if he, if he had a litter. So she found a wife for Gonzalves, a young maiden uh, named Catherine, who was the daughter of a royal court servant. And the story goes that uh, Pedro and Catherine met for the first time on their wedding day mm -hmm. and that she was not given any heads up about who it was she was marrying, which what? is fucking rude. That would be a great reality TV show. Married at first fright. Oh, oh. sorry. So, yeah, they got married and then uh, started having babies, and they had seven. 
mm-hmm. uh, the the word is they had seven and four out of them shared his condition and really? so it was a big thing for them to like go around and like have portraits done but they wouldn't include the the not hairy kids in the portraits because it wasn't fun for the rich folk ah uh, they were shunned right <laughs> which yeah hey it's only fair <laughs> And it, the the king's widow was just delighted. She was so pleased with herself that she had succeeded in creating what she called the wild family. There's an author named Roberto Zaberi who wrote a biography of Petrus. And he told the Smithsonian that the situation was unique because the family wasn't they weren't prisoners, but they also weren't free. They were the property of the mm. kingdom. Um, but they, they, I mean, they were allowed to like live their lives, but as long as it was what the queen wanted them to do. I see. It was very strange. And Catherine also decided that um, the the kids that suffered from the condition that, that their father had would also be um, in these portraits that would be given out to noblemen and and people who were interested in the family if they were, you know, well off. But if they were well off enough and a portrait didn't do, they were they started giving their kids away. The queen would what? would send the kids as pets to oh to my. noblemen who, you know, were, oh, were interested in, that's in this. Heartbreaking. It's horrible. And uh, obviously, the unusual children were like trinkets for these these people who didn't have, you know, MTV. <laughs> so the I mean, um, first of all, you shouldn't give poppies as gifts. No. But giving away human beings is even worse. The, <laughs> thanks for that clarification. I just wanted. Yeah, I'm going no. out on a limb here. But that's the way I am. The Duke of Farnes. Farnes. Mm. I've heard it both ways. He gave young Antonetta Gonzalez to his mistress, Lady Isabella, as a token of his affection. So it, it was just like, it was like a pet. Wow. And that obviously was horrible for the family. But like I said, they weren't free in the way that even though they weren't in chains, their lives really belonged to someone else. So Catherine is believed to have passed away in 1623 after approximately 40 years of marriage to Pedro. And uh, it's thought that Pedro died in 1618, but um, his death isn't mentioned in the register of death in the city that they were living in at the time. And they think that's because only those deaths that were, uh, only the people that were given the last rites were read in the register of deeds i mean the register of deaths and because he was less than human because he was still considered wow not a person he wouldn't have been given his last rights which means his death wouldn't have been registered that's a that's a tough life you know it's horrendous and to think that something is simple give the guy a razor and a bottle of nair and his whole life would be different Essentially, yes. I mean, that's kind of a, yeah. I mean, yeah. Speaking of Nair. Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. 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 I, <laughs> I made the mistake of using her Nair to get rid of some nipple hairs, and now my nipples are sore. Yeah. Yeah, they're yep. like, it's like, it's like I have, I sunburned my nipples. Like you have to set a timer for that kind of thing. It's not for just leaving on long term. Yeah, I got to read the labels. I know it's coarse, but, you know, still, 
it's your skin. You got to keep that. It's important. Um, so anyway, this is the story of Pedro uh, Gonzalez, also known as Petrus Gonzalves, and his wife, Catherine. The story that allegedly inspired Gabrielle Suzanne Barbot de Villeneuve in writing Beauty and the Beast. No, I did not know that. That was based on, oh, wow. Yeah. I thought that was just a fairy tale, like a Grimm's fairy tale. Kind it was of. a fairy tale based on the uh, horrendous lives of these people. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, now I'm going to watch Beauty and the Beast with a whole new perspective. Well, of course, watching it, like the, the Disney version, is so different from the fairy tale to begin with. Um, so read the read the original. It's dark and awful. Okay. I and like delightful. I like dark, awful, and delightful. <laughs> That thing on the side? No. It's that thing in the middle. In 1942, an unlucky Brit exploring the Rukkund area of the Himalayas discovered a lake full of human skeletons. There were bones floating in the water. Others were piled high up on the banks. Some of them still had hair and soft tissue attached. Investigators discovered the remains of more than 200 people. But how did they die? And when? The mystery was solved in 2002 thanks to modern forensics. Researchers determined that the people died circa AD 850. Ice had preserved them. Cause of death? Blunt force trauma to their heads. But not by weapons. These people were done in by a violent thunderstorm that rained down hailstones the size of baseballs. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. So I'm pretty excited. I just started working out this week on a regular basis, and I'm actually, I've, I'm, I'm into it for two different gym sessions, and I feel like I've lost probably 40 pounds already. <laughs> no, that's not true. But I will say this. What motivated me to do this was uh, care of. I started taking their vitamin supplements. I knew I was doing something good for myself, and it inspired me to do something else good for myself. Yeah, care of is a monthly subscription vitamin service that delivers completely personalized vitamin and supplement packs right to your door. Care of puts honesty first, providing all the research that supports each of their recommendations backed by a scientific advisory board. So these are not just a bunch of guys. These are experts. <laughs> They're not a bunch of guys saying vitamin stuff. They're a bunch of guys who are experts in vitamin stuff. Plus, they've got a fun online quiz that asks you about your diet, your health goals, your lifestyle choices. It takes about five minutes to fill out and it finds out what vitamins and supplements you specifically need. So those little packs are specifically made for your bits. Now, let's talk about you as a vegan or a vegetarian. Are you? Well, that's cool. They have supplement options available to match your dietary needs. They also have bacon supplements in case you're not a vegetarian. They don't actually have bacon vitamins. No, but it would be great if they did. Karov, make some bacon vitamins for us, please. 
Care-of's delicious nutrient-packed quick stick powders can be added to your monthly delivery for an extra easy boost whenever you need it. Plus, you can track your progress with the Care-of app and earn rewards when you remember to take your vitamins. I am a very rewards-based person, so this works out really well for me. So if you want to join us in our quest for making ourselves healthier and better, for 25% off your first month of personalized Care-of vitamins, visit TakeCareOf.com, enter promo code BOX. That's 25% off your first month of personalized care of vitamins. Visit TakeCareOf.com and enter promo code BOX. Doing good things for your body and helping out the podcast. Your body will thank you and so will we. The Box of Oddities. It's not for everyone. Our email address is curator at theboxofoddities.com. This came in just a couple of days ago. Uh, Kat and Jethro, I was enjoying today's cast and heard Kat exclaiming about Ted Bundy's VW Beetle. Hmm. I'm instantly reminded of a story my mom told me years ago. She told of a high school friend back in Salt Lake City who was approached by a gentleman at a shopping mall who was driving a Beetle. I don't remember all the details about the encounter, but I think the man said he was a cop and her car had been broken into or something like that and she needed to go with him. I don't remember if she actually got in the modest German automobile or not, but I think she did. I think she suspected shit was not right and got the hell away from him somehow. I don't recall the young lady's name, but you probably know of her and her story as she's the only woman who encountered Ted Bundy and managed not to get murdered. I know that story well. That woman is a badass. My mom's friend in high school almost got murdered by Ted fucking Bundy. Just had to share that with you guys. Keep up the great work. Have fun in Nashville. Signed, Justin H., cable guy in North Carolina, avid boo listener, freak flag flyer. I love it. I'm just so... I. I love that story. Thank you so much. Justin, I'm thrilled every single time I hear that story. And the fact that you have that connection... Do you know that lady? Can you find that lady? Talk to that lady. Yeah, you definitely talk Have to that. Have lunch with that lady. <laughs> Buy her a nice set of tires or some steaks. <laughs> this one is, this has been on my list for a while and we keep getting requests for it over and over and over again. So I guess it's time to bust this one out. Okay. The Winchester Mystery House. <gasps> Ooh. Now we went to the movie Winchester and, and that's loosely based on the real story. Thoroughly enter- entertaining. Absolutely. And this was right around the time that I was learning about the Winchester House for the first time in earnest. It was great timing for me. And uh, you, you know, who who knew all kinds of stuff about it already, or, you know, you were like, hey, have you ever heard of this house? And I was like, um, kind of, sort of. And you're like, it's all this stuff. And then the trailer came on like 40 minutes later. And I was like, <laughs> are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> we actually had a layover in Miami of about five hours. And we took an Uber down to the nearest theater and saw it while we were waiting for our flight. Oh my gosh, that was such a whirlwind trip. Um, And I ended up having to go back to the airport to poop. It was (laughs) a really weird time. It was a weird time for all of us, sweetie. (laughs) My information comes from Wikipedia, Metal Floss, Vanity Fair, and the truth about SarahWinchester.com. I'm just so excited. Thank you. Her birth name was Sarah Lockwood Pardee, P-A-R-D-E-E. She was the fifth of seven children. 
She was born to Leonard Party and Sarah Burns. There are no existing records of exactly when she was born, what the official date was, but they think it's somewhere between uh, 1835 and 1845. When she was born, the parties were pretty uh, well known in New Haven, Connecticut, which is where she was from originally. They were upper middle class. Her father was a joiner by trade. He had a a very shrewd sense of business and was uh, moving up the ladder of society pretty quickly. During the Civil War, he made a fortune supplying ambulances to the Union Army. It's so weird how there are so many parts that go into a war and you never think about the person who supplies ambulances to the army. Right. Now, Sarah, very, very intelligent person, super smart and beautiful. She was compared to Francis Bacon as she was a bit of a child prodigy. According to accounts from that era, by the age of 12, she she was already fluent in Latin, in Spanish, in French and Italian. Oh, wow. That's one more language than Pedro. Furthermore, her knowledge of the classics, especially Shakespeare, was remarkable. And she was a talented musician as well. Now, living in New Haven at the time, it was kind of an interesting time to be there because it was a hub of progressive Freemasonic Rosicrucian uh, thinking and activities. As a result, Sarah was raised and educated in an environment that was uh, ripe with Freemasonic and Rosicrucian philosophy. This, again, is according to the truth about SarahWinchester.com. I need some clarification on Rosicrucian. That sounds to me like Red Cross. They're the organization that many people speculate are behind the Georgia Guidestones oh, that we talked right. about in, the, in a previous episode. Yes, okay. Freemasonic and Rosicrucian philosophy. Several of Sarah's uncles and cousins were Freemasons. And uh, more importantly, at an early age, she was admitted to Yale's only female scholastic institution known as the Young Ladies Collegiate Institute. Two of the school's most influential administrators and professors, Judson A. Root and his brother N.W. Taylor Root, were both Rose Croy Freemasons. So they were involved in the Rosicrucian Freemasonic movement. Now, two of Sarah's schoolmates, Susan and Rebecca Bacon. Now, these two ladies were the ones that came up with um, the theory that Sir Francis Bacon, with the aid of uh, a circle of the finest literary minds of the Elizabethan Jacobian age, were the actual authors, editors, and publishers of Shakespeare's work. Mm, And could be connected to any other actor by six degrees. The six degrees of Francis Bacon. Mm -hmm. Their work was sponsored by uh, people like Nathaniel Hawthorne, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Mark Twain. In addition to their writings, Delia Bacon gave numerous public lectures to the citizens of New Haven, and that is the birthplace of the Bacon is Shakespeare doctrine. I know a lot of people who say things like, I love Bacon and Bacon is God, uh, but... Not not the way that you're... No. No, different. It's a whole different thing. Not a genius Elizabethan uh, playwright, but a delicious breakfast meat. The Winchester Mystery House. So Sarah married William Winchester, who is the heir to the Winchester Rifle Company. Mm-hmm. They had a baby, Anna, Unfortunately, Anna died at age three, and then William died from tuberculosis in 1881. Sarah inherited more than $20.5 million in today's money, over half a billion dollars. Wow. 
she also received 50% ownership of the Winchester Repeating Arms Company, uh, giving her an income roughly of $1,000 a day or equivalent to, are you ready for this? $25,000 a day in today's money. Inheritances gave her a, a tremendous amount of wealth, which she used ultimately to build the Winchester House, which is now known as the Winchester Mystery House. But tabloids at the time said that um, after her infant daughter died and her husband passed away, she consulted a Boston medium. Now, William allegedly spoke through this medium to Sarah and told her that, uh, that Annie, their daughter, had died because it was a result of the blood money the family had made off the Winchester rifles. Now, he warned her that vengeful ghosts would seek her out. And in order to protect herself, William said that Sarah must build a home for herself and for the spirits who have fallen from this terrible weapon. Uh, she was advised to leave her home in New Haven, Connecticut, and move west, where she was to build a grand home for these spirits. There, and there was one catch, according to the tabloids of the day. Mm -hmm. Once construction had started, it could never stop. Quote, if you continue building, you will live, the medium warned Sarah. If you stop, you will die. So Sarah moved out to the San Francisco area and she bought an old chicken farm. It was like kind of a, a half built. It wasn't the construction wasn't completed and mm -hmm. she tore it down and started building this mansion. Uh, she issued many bizarre demands to her builders, including that the building had trap doors and uh, secret passageways, skylights in the floor, spiderweb windows, staircases that led to nowhere. There were doors that would open to blank walls and dangerous door on the second floor. You open it up and there's nothing there except a two-story drop to the lawn below. Jeez Louise. She continued building this house nonstop for 38 years until the day that she died. 38 years? 38 years nonstop. The construction went on. And can you imagine being a local builder, you know, working on this thing? Yes. You you knew you were going to work. That's amazing. And many people say that uh, because of that, she developed a very intimate and strong relationship with these uh, with these workers. To well, the yeah, they're coming in there with their strong arms and... Their sweaty bare backs. Right. <laughs> She took care of their families. I bet she did. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, no, that hey, got weird. Well, Sorry. She paid them very, very well. She, it was almost like uh, they were members of her family. And that went for also the servants who worked there, too. And she had a huge staff, something like 12 gardeners and 12 cooks and wow. or no, 13. 13 was a very important number for her. It was a superstitious thing for her. OK, talk about contributing to the local economy. That's amazing. Many accounts attribute these uh, strange oddities in the building to her belief in the ghosts. She wanted to confuse the ghosts to appease them by giving them a place to stay, but also to confuse them so that they wouldn't bother people. One of the weird things that I, I she was really into uh, technology for the day. Sure. And she was one of the only houses out there that had uh, hot water. I remember you saying that. Yeah. But she only had it in one bathroom. All the other bathrooms, she had like 13 bathrooms and all of the bathrooms, but one, there was no water in them at all. They were fake bathrooms. Fake bathrooms. Well, ghosts don't need indoor plumbing. Right, but what about your guests? That's a horrible trick to play. <laughs> I don't think she had many guests. All right. Uh, she was a bit of a loner, a bit of a recluse. Some of the oddities... <laughs> Just picturing <laughs> using the toilet and then looking and being like, hello? Oh, no. What's a... Uh, what am I going to do What's now? What's just sitting there? 
Uh, uh, where's the towel bar? Uh, yeah. Nice callback to episode seven or whatever it was. <laughs> Some of the odd building techniques and, and structures can be attributed to her arthritis. She had extremely low, flat staircases built. Kind of more like ramps. They were, yeah, they were more like ramps. You'd, you'd walk three or four steps on one step and then step up four inches and, re, and walk three or four steps. And that was because she had arthritis and could not lift her leg more than a few inches at a time. So that's explainable. Many people think that she just kept building because she was depressed about losing her sure. husband and her child. Yeah. And it kept her mind busy. I know that a lot of people who go through the processes like that, like either because of grief or because of long term sickness, a lot of people who are going through terminal illness, but it's like a long term thing, will will do that same thing. They'll either build or they'll shop so that they can fill their home with beautiful things and surround themselves yeah. with with movement and life and beauty because that you know, that's the only thing that they can control at that time. They're trying to fill a hole right. in their lives. As the construction progressed, this house reached seven stories high. Whoa. It's not that anymore. It's four stories. But at its peak, it was seven stories high before the 1906 earthquake. The earthquake, of course, uh, caused some significant damage. Not as much as it could have because she had the foresight to build it on a floating foundation. Oh, wow. Which was really amazing for the time. The floating foundation, of course, allowed the building to, to move and shake during an earthquake without causing excessive stress on the structure. But the earthquake caused three of the floors to collapse. A 1900 postcard of the place shows a tower that was later toppled by the disaster. The tower, plus several other rooms, were destroyed in the disaster. They were never rebuilt. As for Sarah, she was safe, but she was stuck in the daisy bedroom named for her floral motif in the windows. She had to be dug out by her staff as the entrance was blocked off by rubble. Now, did she think that that was the result of something that she had done? I mean, I can imagine that if she thinks that she has to keep building a home to keep the spirits from killing her, then she would also have some sort of explanation like, oh, well, I put up subway tile in the bathroom and, and they, they hated hate that. Yeah, well, there's, no, so, there's no hot water in this bathroom. And if I were a ghost, I would feel betrayed and tricked. Yeah, here's some bathrooms for you that don't work. Right. Or if she put up like that fake wood paneling. Ugh, Ugh I hate that. I hate it. As she stood outside looking at the uh, wreckage of her house, she said to a, a person uh, near her, one of the workers, she confessed that uh, the house looked like a crazy person built it. But she said that the spirits were directing her as to what to build. It was also true that uh, she held occasional nighttime seances in that peaked turret of the house, which was now known as the witch's cap. That was, I think, part of the house that was destroyed in the uh, in the earthquake. Mm -hmm. One of the Winchester Mystery House tour guides said that uh, the spirits are still there, quote, they come at night. Well, of course he said that. He's got tickets to sell. Now, here is something interesting that I did not know, and I, and I uncovered, I uncovered, like I discovered this. Right. I, I discovered it for me for the first time. An alternate theory on why the Winchester's house has this perplexing design, the idea is that Sarah was creating a puzzle of encryptions inspired by the work of Francis Bacon. What? There's speculation that the clues to the house's true meaning are hidden in the ballroom. The Shakespeare windows, there are stained glass windows designed by Tiffany, of all places, that represent uh, various scenes from Shakespeare plays. 
and also the Iron Gates. The theory suggests that Sarah was a member of the Mystic Society of the Rosicrucians or the secret or a secret society like the Freemasons or possibly both. Now, my question is, what kind of message was she hiding in there? Ooh, lost treasure. That's where my mind goes immediately. I want to take my metal detector and go to the Winchester Mystery House. And I just, bet you'd just find hardware. It'd be like, oh, look, more screws. Yeah, nails. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. The Winchester Mystery House is regularly cited as one of America's most haunted places to this day. Um, it's a destination for believers who hope to have a paranormal encounter of their own. It's a popular spot for such activity is the corridors of the third floor. There's a lot of activity there, apparently. Tour guides have claimed to hear footsteps, see uh, disembodied entities, as well as hear voices whispering their name. We should watch that movie again. Because I think, yeah, I want to watch that tonight. Yeah, actually. as you're telling me this story, there are certain parts that I think they did portray in in the film that I'm like, oh, I think that hallway was one of the hallways of. I'd like to watch it again. In a Reddit AMA, a Winchester House tour guide confirmed that the house's third floor, only a portion of which is accessible during tour house uh, during house tour hours, is definitely the spookiest part of the house because, quote, that's where the servants live. So there's been a lot of reported activity there. Also, when you are on that floor, you can never really hear any of the other tours. So you feel pretty isolated when you're there. So this house has been there for, what, 140 years or whatever it is, 138, 140 years, with this strange, twisty, bizarre design that she said was, that Sarah said was, was inspired by ghosts and spirits. Mm -hmm. You would think that they pretty much had that place figured out as far as like a blueprint went or something. As recently as 2016 was announced that another room was found. <laughs> they didn't know it was there until 2016. Maybe it wasn't there until 2016. It was an attic space that contained a pump organ, a Victorian couch, dress form, sewing machine, and paintings. This room was made available for viewing by the public. You can now go see this room that oh was only God. just discovered in 2016. Hidden rooms, yes. Totally in, totally in. In 2017, the Winchester Mystery House debuted the first new daytime tour in 20 years, the, quote, Explore More Tour. This uh, tour takes guests through rooms never before open to the public and explores the rooms left unfinished at the time by Sarah Winchester's death. This is so interesting. And it, it reminds me a lot of a book that I read years ago called um, House of Leaves. And I'm not this, familiar with that. It, it's a, a book that's written as though it's self-aware. And it's a book about a, if I'm remembering this correctly, it's a book about a movie being written based on a book. And the house within it is actually bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. Oh, I and remember something about that. Yeah, yeah. it's it really is so amazing. And the, the book itself is written in such a way that you, it's a work effort to read it. There are some pages that only have like three or four words on it. There are some pages that are written upside down. Oh there are some that are like spiraled. Um, and every time the word, I think it was house. I think every time the word house appears in the book, it's written in red. And it's just, it's really an incredible book. And I would, I would recommend it, even though I didn't just talk about it very well because I have a horrible memory. Can you imagine the printing costs for that? No. 
Now, I had mentioned uh, the Tiffany stained glass windows. Mm -hmm. There's one called a spider web window. It features her favorite uh, web design, which she had some sort of superstitious belief about it being uh, a protecting sign of some sort. So it's uh, like some Winchester continuity throughout the house? <laughs> yeah, like, like Delinean continuity. <laughs> Winchesteran continuity. <laughs> It also incorporated the repetition of the number 13, which was another one of her uh, preoccupations. The window was never installed, but exists in the so-called $25,000 storage room. It's named that because its contents were originally appraised at a value of $25,000. Today, uh, they estimate its value to be closer to uh, $366,000. Just a window that they never installed. Still in storage, but you can go see it. Yes, please. When Winchester died, all of her possessions, apart from the house, were bequeathed to her niece and personal secretary. Her niece then took everything she wanted and sold the rest in a private auction. It took six truckloads working eight hours a day for six weeks to remove the furniture from the house. What? Mrs. Winchester made no mention of the mansion in her will. The appraisers considered the house to be worthless because of the damage of the earthquake, uh, the unfinished design, and the impractical nature of its construction, so it was sold at auction to a local investor for $135,000. What? It was subsequently leased for 10 years to John and Mamie Brown, who eventually purchased the house. In February of 1923, five months after Winchester's death, the house was open to the public, with Mamie Brown serving as the first tour guide. I'm so glad that they recognized the value of that house, even though maybe the appraisers didn't. I wish that more homes were built with the idea of um, individuality and accessibility in it. Like, how many uh, times have you heard of older folk looking for homes that are just one level so they don't have to worry yeah. about going upstairs? Right. And how many people would with arthritis would appreciate stairs built in this way? You're right. And somebody with serious arthritis could benefit from the style of stairs that Sarah Winchester built. Unfortunately, when you get to the top and open the door, you plummet two stories to your death on the lawn. Oh, I mean, there's a downside to that, too. Yeah. Can you imagine trying to keep that up to code? <laughs> That'd be really hard. Today, the home is owned by Winchester Investments, LLC, a privately held company representing the descendants of John and Mamie Brown. The house is still in the family. The house retains unique touches that reflect Mrs. Winchester's beliefs and her reported preoccupation with uh, warding off malevolent spirits. These spirits are said to have uh, directly inspired her to uh, create the house the way it is, including the numbers 13, the spiderweb motifs, and the hodgepodge of hallways, corridors, and doors that lead nowhere. And you can go see it. It is open to the public. The Winchester Mystery House, that is on my oddities road trip list. Yes, please. There are so many parts to that. So many interesting little tidbits. I mean, just the doors that go to nowhere or just the bathrooms that don't function or just the incredible stained glass windows. But it's like, oh, no, we're just going to jam it all into one crazy house. I wonder how her closet space was, though. Well, there's a big closet over here. That'll obviously be my closet. And this, You get this tiny little closet because you're the boy. Yeah. House Hunters International Dialogue. It's a little drinking game that Kat and I play. We put on House Hunters International. And every time the woman makes the joke about the big closet being hers, you take a drink. If we someone complains about granite countertops, take, take a, a drink. drink. Open floor plan, take, take a, a drink. drink. I can picture us entertaining here. Take, take a, a drink. drink. Try it. It's a great holiday game. You'll love it. You'll thank us later. 
The Box of Oddities, uh, our live show, February 27th. Tickets are available at theboxofoddities.com and click the live link. That's also where you can get in touch with us if you've got ideas about uh, show topics. You can also get uh, merch at our website as well. And if you have a chance and you feel so inclined, giving us a positive review really helps uh, grow the podcast. Like on the iTunes? or Especially the... on the iTunes. Yeah. You go on the iTunes and uh, give us a, a positive review. Give us those five stars and subscribe. That's going to help the podcast, the podcast grow. And we do appreciate it. Can I say something real quick? Of course you can. There's on a on the Netflix we've been watching this show about the South Pacific Islands. Yeah, it's uh, hosted by uh by Cumberbatch Butterbun. It's so good and there's uh one episode that's uh, a lot about the volcanoes of the islands in the South Pacific and they're talking about like the the lava flows that have been flowing for like 25 years and mm. it's so fascinating. There's so much beautiful scenery and you get to learn about the animals of the South Pacific and I'm just saying it's something that I've really enjoyed over the last week or so. And so if you're looking for something incredible to watch, watch that. That's all. Cat's Netflix picks. <laughs> I'm sorry. A new feature on the Box of Oddities. <laughs> a show that uh, lands on your phone twice a week. Every Monday, every Thursday. We'll see you on Monday. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2018. All rights reserved. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.